0: Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening, and thank you at the beginning of a new week for watching ADH TV. You can stream us, ADH TV, for free on your television screen, I think you know all this anyway, don't you, by going to the Apple TV App Store or Google Play Store and searching ADH to all our new viewers, and they're all over the world. Every episode is available live at 8pm or whenever you want to watch, on demand. Two monumental events in global politics since I last spoke to you over the past four days, the first being, of course, the resignation of the UK Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. I'll have quite a bit to say about that. On the world stage, where dullness is often the prevailing feature in world leaders, Johnson was the outlier. Always colourful, often witty, and looking like he dressed himself in 30 seconds, it became his signature. Deep down, though, there is a method to his madness. Winning the largest parliamentary majority since the 1980s, the public wanted a leader who would deliver Brexit, sink money into the regions, restore optimism into Britain. Where did it all go wrong for Boris? Well, there are plenty of answers. I actually think there's a bit of a get square here because 75% of all MPs in Westminster were opposed to leaving the EU. They were the Remainers. Boris was, of course, the lever and he ran the campaign. This in a way is their get square. But the thing that strikes me most is that it appears Downing Street wasn't filled with the right people. Disorganisation was the norm. That leads to chaos. Chaos leads... To a clouding of judgment. On so many things, Boris Johnson either backtracked on his principles or was captured by bureaucrats. Then there was the ridiculous green agenda, which was more extreme than any in the world, making him look like as if he was more at home with Extinction Rebellion rather than with the rank and file Tory supporters. Anyway, I'll have something further to say about Boris Johnson in a moment. I'm not one of the people to be dancing on his grave. I think he's a towering figure in world politics. And I'll speak to the former UK High Commissioner, Australian Commissioner, High Commissioner to the UK, George Brandis, about the man he knew, and he knew Boris Johnson well. As the former Senator Brandis wrote on Friday, quote, the Prime Ministership of Boris Johnson may have come to an end, but what a spectacular ride it was, and he did change the course of British history in a way that very few have managed to do, unquote. Then, of course, there is the former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, The 67-year-old was addressing a crowd outside a railway station in Nara, 371 kilometres from Tokyo, in support of the Liberal Democrats in the upper house elections, which were held at the weekend. We'll have results of those uh, tomorrow morning. He was shot in the chest and neck and died five and a half hours later. Abe, A-B-E, pronounced Abe, was someone who was respected right across the world. Japan's longest serving prime minister, who had in 2020 stepped aside, citing health reasons. But he remained a powerful force in Japanese politics. His grandfather was a former prime minister and his father a former foreign minister. Abe is the first Japanese prime minister born after World War II. As The Economist magazine eulogised, quote, ironically, Mr Abe's death reinforced one of his central political messages that the world is a dangerous place and Japan must outgrow its post-war pacifism. I'll have something to say about that because he sought to change the Japanese constitution to outlaw post-war pacifism, but he didn't succeed. But I'll have more to say about that later in the program. And by the way, I will have something to say about Wimbledon too and Nick Kyrgios, extraordinary things over there and some interesting thoughts to offer to you. And remember, you can have your say on anything we raise on the show. Just email me, alanjones at adh.tv, Jones at adh.tv. Well, look, <clears throat> let me say this. There is little objectivity and any amount of inconsistency as the new sport in Britain seems to be dancing on the political grave of Alexander Boris de Pfeffel Johnson. We're told the polls, the punters and the politics all conspired to leave the Prime Minister, as one report said, wallowing in a bog too deep, even for a petroleum-covered porky to squirm out of, unquote. 69% of Britons reportedly wanted Johnson to resign, 54% of Conservatives. Wretched polls again, live by the polls. As I said at the beginning, Boris appeared to be a bad judge in relation to personal staff. Dominic Cummings was the architect of Boris Johnson's 2019 landslide election victory and the delivery of Brexit. To be fair to Cummings, he was right when he clashed with Carrie Simons, variously described as Johnson's mistress-turned-fiancé-turned-wife. Cummings left number 10, claiming Boris Johnson demanded the appointment of Carrie Simons' friend as a new spokeswoman because, quote, she's going crackers, meaning the fiancé wife. According to Cummings, Boris Johnson supposedly asked, why can't I be my own chief of staff? This is typically Boris. Why can't I be my own director of communications? Yes, I'll F up all sorts, but so what? If I can't do what I want, what's the point of being prime minister? Unquote. So Boris or Cummings left and became a trenchant and mostly poisonous critic. Perhaps the last accusation against Boris Johnson is proof of the lack of objectivity. That was last week's story. They said, well, this is the end of the section here. The former Conservative Deputy Chief Whip, Chris Pincher, has been suspended over groping allegations. The Johnson critics were in confected outrage that such a man could have been appointed by Boris Boris as a spokesman for the Johnson ministry. Well, what's conveniently forgotten is that Johnson's predecessor, Theresa May, ceaselessly, ceaselessly sought to bring her critics into cabinet, including Boris himself, I might add, and Theresa May reappointed the same pincher as a whip, despite the same rumours, precisely because she felt he had influence with the more Brexity parts of the party that she didn't have. Nonetheless, it's only 30 months since Boris Johnson led the Conservative Party to a landslide majority of 80 seats, with 43.6% of the popular vote, the highest for any party since 1979. David Cameron, of course, had fallen on his sword after failing to win the remainder leave referendum. Prime Minister Theresa May resigned, unable to get the parliament to agree to the terms of the referendum result. Boris Johnson became the leader, promptly called a snap election and campaigned on the mantra, get Brexit done. And get it done, he did. And that is why we now can hear the cheering of the elites at his departure. The Boris bashing relates significantly to the fact that he achieved Brexit, the most serious moment in modern British politics, leaving the European Union. The enormity of that success embarrassed those who are his critics now, who today argue, if Boris goes, Brexit goes. At the time of the referendum about Britain leaving the EU, 75% of all MPs at Westminster supported Remain. 95% of Labor MPs backed Remain. Only 5% of Labor MPs backed Leave. But when the referendum took place, 52% of the public voted to Leave, highlighting the massive chasm separating the Liberal elites in the British Parliament from the public. In other words, from the moment Cameron called the referendum, voters knew they were in a fight not only with Brussels, but with Westminster as well. And that created a nightmare for Theresa May as the parliament openly sought after the public vote to frustrate Brexit. Indeed, opposition leader Starmer demanded a second referendum, which would have involved rendering void the votes of millions of people and forcing them to vote again. <clears throat> well, Putter saw Boris Johnson as one of the few people who took the public seriously, and he listened to them. And when it came to that serious moment in modern British politics, leaving the European Union, he treated ordinary people with more respect than any other member of the political class. 52% of the public voted yes to leave, but the bulk of the parliament, the elites, were completely out of step with the voter. And Boris said, quote, I will get Brexit done. And 14 million people gave him their votes. I was there at the time. The media and the politicians were part of an overwhelming and noisy class of Remainers. Boris Johnson read the mood of the working class and the Brexit triumph alone will fortify Boris Johnson's place in political history. The election he called after winning the leadership gave him a landslide victory for one reason. From north to south, from east to west, in Britain, the voters felt that someone was taking them seriously. Voters across England felt an extraordinary sense of relief that there was a politician who was going to uphold their votes. As Brendan O'Neill wrote, who was going to uphold the thing their great grandfathers and great grandmothers fought for, the right of citizens to determine the political future of the nation. Brendan O'Neill was right. The British people wanted to control their destiny, not Brussels. Boris was giving them that chance. And that is what Boris Johnson will always mean to this generation of British voters. He gave a voice of the wishes of the people when almost nobody else in the British Parliament would. But it's the Remainers now who want to bash him up and feel that this is their ultimate moment of triumph. That is why there are many British people who only get a voice at election time who've not joined the Boris bashing. They are worried about what will come next. They fear it may be the mob at Westminster who didn't want to listen to them in the first place. So they'll be saying... Now that Boris is gone, can Brexit be next? Well, you've heard my thoughts on Boris Johnson, but let's look at Boris Johnson from the perspective of a man who knew him and who, in his role as Australia's High Commissioner to the United Kingdom for four years, had significant involvement with the British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. George Brandis was a Liberal Senator for Queensland, and a good one, I might add, from 2000 to 2018, and was a minister in the Howard, Abbott and Turnbull governments. He's a graduate of Magdalen College, Oxford, and replaced Alexander Downer as the High Commissioner to the UK in May 2018. Last month, he was appointed a professor in the practice of national security at the ANU, and George Brandis joins me. George, thank you for your time. A splendid piece of writing last week about Boris Johnson, but you opened by mentioning Lord Heseltine. Now. There's no surprise that Heseltine was dancing on Boris's grave. He was also instrumental, wasn't he, in bringing down Margaret Thatcher?
1: Well, he was. I mean, Michael Heseltine's a, a very old political uh, war horse from way back, way he back is. in the 1970s. And he was a very, very ardent uh, advocate of Britain remaining in the EU. And, there was a, and I think you've pointed this out in your editorial. There is a subtext here of those who... Um, who got Boris Johnson in the end, that uh, a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it was um, was resentment of, of the role he played in masterminding the Leave campaign and then a- as Prime Minister in bringing about Brexit
0: uh, uh, in 2020. Yes, I made the point in those comments just before that you've heard that there's not a lot of objectivity in this stuff. I mean, given that 75% of the MPs at Westminster supported Remain, and as I said, 95% of Labor MPs backed Remain, isn't it a fact that many of those people have never forgiven Boris? Now, you've said if the ultimate test, and this was a magnificent point, of the significance of a political leader is the extent to which they change their nation's history, you said, then Johnson was without question the most important British Prime Minister since Thatcher. Just amplify that point, please, George.
1: Uh, well, I, I make that point for one very simple reason. The most important event that has happened in British history in the last, certainly last 50 years, uh, almost since Britain decided to go into the what was then the European Economic Community in 1973, was Brexit. And Brexit would not have happened without Boris Johnson. In 2016, he was the face and the leader of the leave campaign. Most people, including the then Prime Minister David Cameron, uh, almost took it for granted that the British people uh, would, from their point of view, see sense and decide to stay. Boris and a relatively small number of senior Tory politicians uh, um, took a different view. And Boris was the face of the leave campaign, and the and the vote to leave was a pretty narrow-run thing. 51.9% in the end voted to leave. Then Fast forward a few years later, Boris is prime minister. He replaces Theresa May. Theresa May, who I might say is a very good person, a very good woman, but was completely incapable of dealing with um, the complexities of getting out of Brexit. And she had a hostile parliament uh, uh, that she just couldn't get her legislation through. Boris replaced her three years ago. Um, There was a general election held in December of that year, December 2019. That gave him a, a, a thumping majority, an 80-seat majority. And he then um, took control of the negotiation with the EU uh, and steered Britain out of Brexit, uh, out of out of Europe and, and brought Brexit to fulfil, to fulfillment. In fact, um, his election slogan in 2019 was a brilliant and simple election slogan: get Brexit done. Well, he got Brexit done. And as the principal author and political mastermind of the most important event in British political history, really in the last half century, I think plainly he is the most consequential prime minister that Britain has had in that
0: time for that reason alone. Absolutely. And and of course you make the point that he won two elections as mayor of London, which is a Labour city through and through. And then, as you said, won the biggest Tory majority since Thatcher, smashed the so-called Red Wall, 60 or so seats in the industrial north of England, which had been Labor heartland for generations. Now, isn't it significant where 95% of the Labor Party in the Parliament at Westminster were in favour of remaining, but 52% of the electorate voted to leave. Basically, those people saw Boris Johnson as the only person prepared to give them a voice and act according to their dispositions.
1: Yeah, and Boris Johnson could speak to working-class voters in a way that the Labor Party leader at the time, Jeremy Corbyn, who was about as close to being an old como as it's possible to to, to get in in British um, um, uh, parliamentary democracy, uh, couldn't. I mean, Corbyn represented, as I said in the piece I wrote in the Sydney Morning Herald, Corbyn represented everything good, old-fashioned, patriotic, Traditional Labor voting people loathed. Uh, He was cosmopolitan. He was from the uh, uh, the elitist um, uh, uh, suburbs of North London. He didn't speak their language. He was way, way, way to the left of where the Labor Party should have been. Uh, Even uh, by by British Labor standards, where often there have been quite left-wing leaders, Corbyn was at the ex- very extreme edge of the left. Mm. He had nothing to say to traditional Labor voters who no. were patriots. That's it. These people, they, they had, 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 had weathered the, uh, the the massive economic dislocation that was brought about during the Thatcher Revolution. They had stuck from one generation after generation after generation by the Labor Party, and now they were faced with a Labor leader uh, whose politics they found repulsive. Uh, and a Tory leader who spoke directly to them yes. and honoured the promise yes. to take Britain out of the EU, which yes. all of those ultra, old-star Labor people had voted for.
0: Yes, that's i Just repeating that point, you see, 52% in the referendum of the public voted Leave, yet in Westminster, 95% of Labor MPs were backing Remain. Uh, George, surely that identifies a gaping chasm which separates the Liberal elites from ordinary people? Well, certainly that's evident
1: in the United Kingdom where, I mean, L- Linton Crosby, who's been a friend of mine for 40 years, that said to me when I arrived in the United Kingdom, Linton is the guru behind Boris Johnson, of course, uh, and his campaigns to become mayor of London in particular. Linton said to me, the way to think about London is it's a city state. It's like Venice was in the 16th century. It's got nothing to do with the hinterland. London, um, around what they call the M25, the orbital um, freeway around London, is so cut off from the rest of England and the rest of the United Kingdom that that there is a state of mind in London that does not represent the mainstream of public opinion in the UK. Now, there are only about 8 million people live in London. There are about 60, 68 million people live in the United Kingdom. And what Boris was able to do, but Corbyn uh, was not, is reach beyond the London elites, beyond the the wealthy elites in the south of England, and connect with people in the Midlands and the north, the old industrial heartland. And he spoke
0: to them in a way the Labor leader couldn't. Mm. Yeah, their Labor leader, Starmer, actually wanted another referendum. Uh, But as you say, the demographic in which Boris Johnson scored the highest vote at that election was the older working class man. So even though we had here in Boris Johnson, and you've written brilliantly about this, you called him a prize winning classicist, which he was, whose idea, as you say, of a relaxing evening was to read Latin and Greek. But you, quote you George Brandis, quote, he managed to communicate with the man in the street in the way that left other politicians for dead. What about the speeches that Boris had made, though? You say, funny, self-deprecating, charming, eccentrically laced with obscure allusions. And I love this bit, George, you said, and the occasional word that nobody had used since the 19th century. They were lethal in their message, but entertaining, weren't they?
1: Well, look, I went to each of the Tory conferences that happened while I was the High Commissioner I attended, and I have never seen... Somebody, uh, his style is quite idiosyncratic. It's quite unique. But one of the benefits for him is that he didn't sound like a politician. He didn't. He, he didn't. He didn't speak the, 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 the sort of predictable rhetoric that po- political leaders on both sides tend to speak. He had a unique voice because he was so idiosyncratic. Uh, he arrested people's attention. But nevertheless. He always got the message through mm. and people found him relatable in a strange way, mm. even though his background, of course, was much more privileged than the background of most people in the United Kingdom. Yeah. Unusually for somebody from that background, people
0: found him somebody they could relate to. Yeah. And what about you make the point and we've made the point, we've heard it made, oh, Boris would tell lies from the time the sun came up to the sun went down and you've likened him to Disraeli, who was pretty good at fiddling with the truth. Well, I think Disraeli was. If uh, I mean, I'm a, Alan. I'm a,
1: a bit of a, a an obsessive about British political history, and I find 19th century British political yes. history very interesting. So I've read several of the biographies of Disraeli and of the other great prime ministers of that era. The most idiosyncratic um, prime minister of the 19th century was Benjamin Disraeli, no doubt about it. And yet he got around Gladstone, his great rival, and actually did what. Johnson was able to do um, 150 years later, he connected
0: the Conservative Party to the working class. My amazing stuff. I mean, you quote, you quote the American pollster and commentator Frank Luntz in the article you wrote, and your words quote, in 40 years as a political observer in both the United States and Britain, he had never seen, said Luntz, a political leader more phenomenally charismatic. Where to from here, then, for Boris, a relatively young man? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure we haven't heard the
1: last of him. He did say to me last year once, but I think he was joking that after he left politics, he might settle in Australia. He, He loves Australia, by the way. That's something that Australians need to know about Boris Johnson. He is an absolutely ardent Australophile. He spent most of his gap year when he was in his late teens Um, as a boarding master at at Geelong Grammar, I think it was. And uh, he is a a huge enthusiast for Australia. His father, Stanley, who's quite a good friend of mine, actually comes to, uh, or at least before the pandemic, used to come to Australia every year. So, I mean, Australia is a a very important um, part of, 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 of Boris Johnson world.
0: And just finally, George, before you go, how will history regard Boris Johnson? Well, as I said in the article to which you referred, Alan, it will
1: regard him as the prime minister who was the author of one of the most important inflection points in British history, and you know there's, there, he was very—he was quite reckless. He was very untidy, um, but he, but on the big things, getting Brexit done, much more recently being the leader of Europe and arguably the leader of the world in responding to Putin's aggression in Ukraine because Johnson came out harder, stronger, faster, and with more moral clarity than any other world leader after the invasion of Ukraine. So on Brexit, on Ukraine, and other issues too, like the environment, he has he, 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 he is a big picture politician, a big picture statesman who got the big things right but he was lazy, he was lazy, reckless and careless, and was brought down by the
0: small things. Yes, indeed. Great to talk to you, George. Thank you for your time. Great, wonderful insights there. George Brandis, a former Attorney General in Australia, and just recently has been, come home from being the Australian High Commissioner to the UK. Wonderful insights. Thank you, George. All the best. We'll keep in touch, and we will catch up somewhere. I hope. Thank you, Al. There he is George Brandis. Look, I spoke only a couple of weeks ago about our Prime Minister's intervention on the world stage, telling NATO leaders in Madrid that what's happening in Ukraine is, quote, uniting the democratic world. I said at the time, I didn't know what uniting the democratic world means, except that, on many fronts, that world seems fairly impotent. Let's face it, look at the fate of Myanmar and the democratically elected leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, transferred from house arrest to prison a 77-year-old democratically elected Nobel laureate, now in solitary confinement and could face a sentence of more than 150 years in jail. And then there is Sri Lanka, a country run by the dynastic Rajapaksa family. Now, we're playing a test series against Sri Lanka and the brave Sri Lankans are making a real fist of it. But in the capital, Colombo, at the weekend, chaos reigned. As more and more people joined the protests, the police and security forces gave up and the protesters were inside the presidential palace. They saw firsthand what they knew, the height of luxury and opulence, representing a level of wealth unaccessible to ordinary Sri Lankans. Now, you see some of those photos there. I mean, they played on the president's piano, lounged on his bed, showered in his bathroom, and there you are, swam in the pool when the nation's anger over its economic and political turmoil was let loose. They achieved one result that was important, The Interim Prime Minister, Wickramasinghe, has said he will leave office on Wednesday and the President, who apparently fled to an unknown location before the protesters arrived, will also step down on Wednesday. But the economic meltdown in Sri Lanka continues. Opposition parties are talking about the formation of a new government. But what difference will that make? Sri Lanka is relying on aid from India and other nations as leaders try to negotiate a bailout with the International Monetary Fund. Wick Remisinga said recently that negotiations with the IMF were complex, listen to this, because Sri Lanka was now a bankrupt state. Months of demonstrations have all but dismantled the Rajapaksa political dynasty, which has ruled Sri Lanka for most of the past two decades and is accused, rightly, by protesters of mismanagement and corruption. Fuel costs have made other forms of travel impossible, so the protesters crowded onto buses and trains on Saturday, while others made their way on bicycles and on foot. But so far as the platitudes that the invasion of Ukraine has united the democratic world, where is the democratic world in relation to Sri Lanka, when the Prime Minister has called his own country a bankrupt state? Religious leaders argue President Rajapaksa has lost his mandate to say nothing of the other family members all brothers, the sports minister, that's one of them, the justice minister, another, the defence minister, the irrigation minister, the agriculture minister, most of the Rajapaksas or else they're the lawyers for the Rajapaksas and they've rorted the country. What happens next will be pivotal, pivotal for the future of Sri Lanka. The country could descend into anarchy or the protests could create necessary systemic change. Right to the end a corrupt government tried to curtail the demonstrations, ordering the police to use tear gas, shoot water cannons at crowds, and give the military greater powers, all to defend the indefensible. It is expected the Speaker will now step in as interim president. But not only does the government, whatever its composition, have no legitimacy and no mandate, will a new government provide the necessary stability? The first change must be to remove the sweeping powers that the President now has to appoint and fire ministers, to determine elections, to appoint the public service and the police, to call for corruption investigation commissions, which means if you yourself are corrupt, there'll be none. The country has to secure a significant foreign bailout. It needs at least six billion to tide over its foreign exchange reserves and pay for the import of essential goods. But the International Monetary Fund says, if Sri Lanka is to receive a bailout, the nation will have to do more to restructure debt and address corruption. That could take months, leaving Sri Lankans, innocent Sri Lankans, facing even worse living conditions. One protester summed it up best when he said, even though there's a lot of celebration at the moment, we're yet to reach the tip of the iceberg. We don't trust the Rajapaksas. So until they have resigned, we're not going to feel like celebrating," unquote. Back to Prime Minister Albanese, telling NATO leaders that what's happening in Ukraine is, quote, uniting the democratic world. The little island of Sri Lanka of 22 million lovely people seems not to be part of the so-called democratic world that they're talking about. Well, let's go for a weekly dose of common sense with Mark Latham, the Leader of One Nation in the New South Wales Parliament. Mark, thank you again, as always, for your time. Look, I don't understand this. We've had rain, as you know, like no one would know. There are about 30 local government areas designated as natural disaster zones. There's been so much rain. But the $2.3 billion desalination plant has been dialled up to maximum capacity to produce 250 million litres of drinking water a day while floods have inundated the city. Why are we short of water?
2: Well, Alan, in the wacky world of climate change, um, someone's decided that um, there's another crisis. Uh, the crisis is too much water. And the idea that uh, from the floods, it, it flushes out into the ocean, and then we've got to take it back, remove the salt and use it as drinking water. We've, we've got so much water here in Camden, in Southwest Sydney, in the, the Hawkesbury, Nepean, the, the flood zones, people don't know what to do with so much Absolutely. water. Anyone on a bit of property, their dams are full, uh, their, their water tanks are full. It sounds like the most ludicrous uh, state government policy you'll ever hear of. Uh, Bob Carr built this uh, desalination plant, a complete white elephant, completely unnecessary. I'm I'm told that South Africa wants to build one. Can we ship it over there and sell it? <laughs> well, hang on. We i have got so even... much water, we don't need it. I've we don't even... need
0: it at Cornell. I've got even worse news for our viewers, and you've got to say this slowly. When This thing's privately owned, by the way, and when it's operating, that's when it's operating, it costs the taxpayer $702,000 a day, a day. When it's not operating, $480,000 a day. Now, firstly, Mark, why do we desalinate and not recycle? I mean, why do we flush the toilet with the same water with which we make our tea?
2: Well, none of it makes any sense. Um, I suppose this is all part of false prophecy. Uh, uh, Tim Flannery yeah. famously said that uh, Sydney's rivers would never fill again, the dams yeah. would never fill again. And they made him a And they're trying to raise the wall 14 metres to hold more water. So Bob Carr obviously thought that uh, Sydney was going to run out of drinking water. That's ludicrous. And why don't we do more recycling? Well, quite frankly, at the moment, we, we don't need recycling Can't, so no, much as no. water removal. No. To get no. it out of the um, the catchment areas where people have had to evacuate their homes yes. because of the floods. I mean, this is 250
0: million litres a day. That is 15% of Sydney's water supply. Now, now you don't, they don't come smarter than Mark Latham, and he doesn't understand. I don't understand. But when it pelts down with rain, all that water goes into the ocean, then we pay to have the salt taken out and bring it back as desalinated water. Uh beyond belief, I would have thought. Anyway, look, let's move on from all of that. Um, Mark, this uh, Barilaro inquiry, uh, are you in the middle of all of that? A parliamentary inquiry? It seems that there are massive contradictions here. And the job was given by Bar- uh, Berejiklian to a lady who was in Investment New South Wales, whatever they're called. And then suddenly we learned that there's another lady who was offered the job. And then we learned that Perrottet said, well, it's not a matter for the government. But then they're saying, well, the government were the people who changed the way in which the appointment was going to be made. What do you make of this?
2: Well, to work out what's going on, you need a diagram like Barry Jones's Noodle Nation. <laughs> you do. Back in the day, all the squiggles and connecting lines and yes. arrows uh, to try and figure out what's going on. It's a complete dog's breakfast. But at the bottom line, I, I stood up in Parliament and said, Would you find a more effective trade commissioner than John Barillaro? Now it mightn't be fashionable to say that and they're trying I to say make that. out it's a yep. big scandal. But I'll tell you one thing, Alan, are we better off as taxpayers and, and a, a government in New South Wales having someone like Barilaro, who if they close the door, he'll knock it down to, to, to get access for our export yep. markets, who knows every significant industry leader, particularly in the resources sector in New South Wales, who's got vast experience in this portfolio area, who to me seems impeccably qualified, he ran his own business, he was an exporter before he good got on into you. parliament. I agree entirely. Is, is that the sort of person we need, or a, a, a bland, semi-anonymous public servant that nobody's ever heard of, who wouldn't be able to open any doors in New York? So I, I thought, however they got there, he was a good appointment, and I think it's a loss for New South Wales that he's had to abandon it. Yeah, but so where is it heading now? Who's
0: running the show? I mean, this Jenny West, the deputy secretary of investment New South Wales, was told by Berjicklin last August that she would get the job. No contract had been signed. She says she was told the job would be, quote, a present for someone. When the offer to her was revoked, but she got a text on August 12 and a briefing note signed by Berejiklian confirming as Jenny West that she would be appointed. And she says when she was notified her New York appointment was at risk. She was told she mightn't be able to keep her present job at Investment New South Wales either. So in the space of four weeks. She went from being appointed to a role of senior trade and investment commissioner for the Americas to potentially not having a job. There's some grave
2: weakness in a public administration here, surely. Oh, yeah, it's a complete shambles. Uh, Jenny West obviously upset. Within four weeks, she went from a rooster to a feather duster. She had nothing. Uh, she was going to be uh, perched there in uh, New York and ended up with uh, no job at all. So I feel sorry for her. I listened to her evidence to the committee today. The committee, to some extent, is dancing on Barilaro's grave. But anyway, they're going to go on to establish the process. Maybe the villain here is Amy Brown, the head of Investment New South Wales, because Jenny West today uh, gave a very different account to Amy Brown's sworn evidence about uh, supposed problems with her CV and not doing her existing job properly. Um, Their evidence um, uh, is at, uh, at variance. So, uh, Amy Brown, I don't know how she got that job at the Head of Investment New South Wales. Is it her fault or does it go higher into the government? At this stage, we don't know, but it's completely uh, a a schmozzle and a very bad reflection on public administration. I mean, this is a job, Mark, you're 100% correct
0: and you're 100% correct too in your assessment of Barilaro. I made that point two weeks ago. I couldn't think of anyone as a better appointment, but... It's a $500,000-a-year job approximately and you've got Perrottet and these people saying, well, it's not a Cabinet decision, we're at arm's length. Now, if we're going to make a job such as that available to anybody and pay them half a million dollars, surely a government has to be
2: involved. Yeah, you'd think so. I would have thought uh, establishing these. Um, the main one is the Agent General in in London, which was abandoned under John Fay because Neil Pickard there uh, disgraced himself. So these had been abandoned over 20 or 30 years. They brought them back thinking that uh, a provincial government, a New South Wales government needs some trade representation overseas. I would have thought it's a national responsibility. It's another example of New South Wales funding things that are better discharged by the Commonwealth government with its um, export powers. So um, uh, they've decided to to do it. You would have thought it would be a cabinet decision. I suppose the only defence the government can really muster is the change in uh, leadership from Berejiklian to Perrottet. Berejiklian wanted this Jenny West to have the job signed off on it. Berejiklian resigned because of the ICAC inquiry and maybe under Perite they decided to take a different direction. That, that's the only thing that looks but obvious. But I just
0: want you to come back to that assessment you made of Barillaro, because few have made it. I made that point here on the program. Let's just hear that again.
2: Well, John Barillaro, before he got into Parliament, ran a very successful business around Queanbeyan district. Uh, He was an exporter. Uh, He got into Parliament. He's not everyone's cup of tea, but I I said to uh, Barillaro, Alan, the reason you're unpopular, John, is because you've got things done. There's plenty of loafers and and good-for-nothing ministers in there who never achieve anything over a decade in office in that Macquarie Street Parliament. But Barillaro was a doer, and one of the reasons the lefties don't like him is that he he stood up against the ridiculous koala set, which was the clearing roundabouts and racecourses and football grounds and and long-standing housing estates to be koala habitat. So Barilaro made some enemies in there and um, uh, they've had a shot at him but his credentials in in knowing industry leaders, in knowing the portfolio area, in having a big personality to knock on doors to actually get access for our export markets, who would you find better than him to do the job? Mm -hmm. And he, he says, and I'm sure it's true, he just applied to it as a private citizen having resigned from Parliament. So he's done nothing wrong. And I think New South Wales, sadly, is going to miss out on the best person who could have filled the position. And and here's a bloke who was way ahead of the
0: curve on nuclear energy and was so knowledgeable, seen to be so knowledgeable, that at an international convention in America, Barilaro was, addressed to, uh, was asked to address all the hot shots in America with his views about nuclear energy. I mean, they know who he is. Look, what do we make of this jobs fiasco? You said at the end of last year that for 30 years, our governments have spent billions of dollars supposedly making young Australians job ready. But, quote, this is you, Mark Latham, now in the post-COVID economic recovery, there are 50,000 fruit picking jobs, 30,000 hospital vacancies and 15,000 trades and construction jobs that can only be filled by foreign workers. Now, you've made the point that some parts of Western Sydney have youth unemployment at 30 and 40 per cent. And you said there are so many job vacancies that anyone who says they can't find work is not looking for it. Now, you made this point last December. We're even worse off now than we were then. Mark?
2: Well, the waste of money on so-called training programs to make young people job ready, uh, where's all the money gone? This has gone over 30 years. I was in the federal parliament when Keating brought down the working nation statement and the idea was that every young person have a pathway to work because they'd have the training and the skills to get them into a job. Well, how can we have high youth unemployment in places like Western Sydney and country New South Wales and labour shortages at the same time? The system needs someone to come in, a, a doer, to come in to get the proper focus. So there's no excuses anymore. A, a young person wanting to look for a job will find one in the current environment. It might be working in hospitality, it might be cleaning, it might be retail, but it's a job. It's a, it's a, it's a foot on the ladder of the job market to, to get themselves into something even better down the track. So, for all this training, we've still got young people, quite frankly, who are shaping up as job snobs. They won't take certain kinds of jobs. Well, for them, uh, you need the tough love of saying you can't bludge on the dole forever. You must accept these job positions. I don't think the Centrelink system is fair income, it wasn't under Scott Morrison. And we've also got to do a lot more in the school system for young people, uh, 13 to 15-year-olds, mainly boys who disengage from the academic curriculum, to get them into effective training so they can get a job. Some high schools do it well, but Alan, I visited a um, high school in a disadvantaged part of southwest Sydney, right next door to a TAFE, and I said, what relationship do you have with the TAFE to get the young fellas up at the TAFE instead of messing around in the maths and English class, uh, put them into TAFE Uh, in school time to get them skills. And they say, oh, we really don't have much to do with TAFE. So all of that is just hopeless. Some Mm -hmm. schools are hopeless, some are quite good. We've got to make them all high quality training options for young people who don't want to go on with the academic callings.
0: Absolutely. Just before we go, I should remind my viewers, this is the man who said last December that the federal government should announce the abolition of the dole as of March 1, 2022. And he made this obvious point. We can't have permanent youth unemployment in Australia. A generation who think that work is optional and taxpayers will carry them forever. Outstanding stuff, Mark. We'll talk next week. Great to talk to you. Thank you for your time. Check out on that desalination (laughs) desalination plant for me, will you? (laughs) There he is. I'll put a for sale sign. Hopefully the South Africans will buy (laughs) it. Absolutely. There he is, Mark Latham, the Leader of One Nation in the New South Wales Parliament. Well, there was much more to the Wimbledon Championships now complete than Nick Kyrgios, though you wouldn't know it, to him in a moment. Those of you who watched the final, and I must say, according to the numbers from last night, I am surprised. So few apparently did. But for a moment in the third set, play was halted by a kerfuffle in the stands when the young Brisbane political activist Drew Pavlou was removed from the centre court by security officials for holding up a sign, quote, where is Peng Shui? He said he wanted to highlight the plight of the Chinese tennis player Peng Shui because she was an innocent woman, he said, being persecuted. Drew Pavlou said tennis authorities were protecting their massive Chinese sponsorship contracts at the expense of finding out what happened to Peng. Now, Peng Shui is allegedly retired. In 2014, though, she was ranked the number one doubles player in the world and number four, pardon me, number 14 in singles. Drew Pavlou then said on Twitter, quote, The Chinese government tried to wipe Peng Shui from the face of the earth because she came out and accused a top Chinese Communist Party official of sexual assault. And the saddest thing is they've almost been successful in making everyone forget about her. I don't want people to forget, unquote. Drew Pavlou is making a valid international point to the men's singles final and the gifted and often ingenious Nick Kyrgios against one of the greatest players the game has seen, Novak Djokovic. Djokovic won his seventh Wimbledon. What did Nick Kyrgios win? Well, it depends on your viewpoint. He went on to centre court, which is bathed in 135 years of tradition. He was a visitor in a foreign land with the honour of playing inside one of those beautiful theatres of sport. No one expects him to be Mother Teresa, but it was important that he behaved with dignity and respect. He didn't. The profanities and the vulgarities grew worse as the game went on. Not that he had to behave because royalty was present, but young Prince George was in earshot when not for the first time Nick Kyrgios screamed his box, what do you want now? What do I get to effing 4015? and you just sit there? Why do you do that? I might add that all this screaming has a solution. The referee should have come in and said, if you're going to carry on like that, we'll have to disqualify you, but not a whimper from the referee. The Duchess of Cambridge and Prince George were metres away as the mother sought to distract the eight-year-old. At times, Nick Kyrgios was brilliant, matching shots with the great Djokovic. At other times, he reverted the age-old tactic of deflecting any blame from himself onto others, screaming at the box. Kyrgios may well be more gifted than any player on the circuit, but you won't beat great players until you can beat your own offensive behaviour. Well, the two young men who lost the Australian Doubles Championship early this year to Kyrgios and Thanasi Kokonakis are now Wimbledon champions. This is an amazing story. The two M's, Matthew Ebden and Max Purcell, the first Australian team into a men's doubles final since 2000, but they now join other famous Australian Doubles Wimbledon champions, Kirsten Brummich, Sedgman and McGregor, Hoden, Rosewell, Emerson and Fraser, Newcomb and Roach, McNamee and McNamara, and the two witties, Woodbridge and Woodford now joined by Ebden and Purcell, beating the defending champions on Saturday in five sets. In fact, every one of their matches went to five sets except the quarter final. And at one stage, they were down love 40, three match points against them in the round before the quarter finals. I mean, for their trouble, and the five sets again on Saturday, for their trouble, they share 540,000 English pounds. By the way, Novak won 2 million, Nick Kyrgios won 1.05 million. The total prize money at Wimbledon is 40.35 million pounds. It was always a stupid decision by the All England Club to prevent ranking points being awarded to players at Wimbledon. The All England Lawn Tennis Club, which owns and operates the Wimbledon Championships, was coerced to either ban the Russian and Belarusian players from Wimbledon or require them to sign statements opposing President Putin and that would have put their families at home at risk. If the British government wanted to ban those players, it should have done so itself and not placed the responsibility on the Championship Committee. The men's and women's tennis tours are against the discrimination of their players for any political reason, but not wanting to damage the tournament, they decided to withdraw all ranking points for players at Wimbledon so that those banned would not suffer under the ranking system. It is a mess highlighted by the victory on Saturday of a magnificent, softly spoken, outwardly shy, 23-year-old from Kazakhstan, Elena Rybakina. But she was born, coached, and educated in Moscow, and she actually lives there still. But she went to Kazakhstan in 2018 because she was offered financial assistance that was unavailable to her in Moscow, and she took out citizenship. She won the ladies' singles against the more highly ranked Tunisian Ons Jabour, walked to the net with no emotion, shook hands with their opponent, waved to the crowd twice and sat down. Nonetheless, the Duchess of Cambridge, after all the business about banning Russian players, presented the Venus Rosewater dish to Elena Rybakina, born, coached, living and educated in Moscow. The Russian embassy would have been laughing. But on a non-tennis point, what on earth is Anthony Albanese talking about when he says New Zealanders living and working in Australia could be given the right to vote. Of course, the hidden agenda is, give them the right to vote and they might improve Labor's 32% tally at the last election. Prime Minister Albanese says he'll ask a parliamentary committee to consider the change after meeting with the New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinta Ardern, who seems to be heavily out of favour in New Zealand. Albo, just tell the New Zealanders a simple thing. If they're living and working in Australia, We welcome them. But if they want to have a vote, become Australian citizens. It's as simple as that. Well, before we go, I mentioned this at the start of the show, the tragic news on Friday of the death of the former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe at the age of 67. He was shot in the back and the neck while delivering a speech at a campaign event in the southern city of Nara, about 480 kilometres from Tokyo. A 41-year-old man who's been described as a loner made the gun from buying parts online, shot Abe and was immediately tackled at the scene. He's now in custody. It's believed the man's mother donated money to a religious group, which he believed Abe was a part of, and therein lies his motive, though authorities are not yet sure. No figure in Japanese polity can match Abe's network of relationships with world leaders. For example, India declared a national day of mourning and America's White House lowered its flag to half-mast in his honour. Here in Australia, the Sydney Opera House sales projected an image of the Japanese flag. First elected to parliament in 1993, Abe became Japan's youngest post-war prime minister in 2006 at the age of 52. He stepped down a year later, citing health reasons. Then in 2012, he served a second term as PM until 2020, making him Japan's longest serving prime minister. He relinquished the Prime Ministership again, revealing he had suffered a relapse of ulcerative colitis, an inflammatory bowel disease. Sadly, his send-off as Prime Minister was like his death, not fitting of the man. Japan, as you know, was to host the Tokyo Olympics in 2020, but it was delayed until 2021. Abe once said that when Tokyo was announced as the host city, he was happier than he'd been when he became Prime Minister. He had hoped that the Olympic Games would inject hope and happiness into Japan after decades of economic stagnation, demographic decline and disastrous natural disasters. He'd hoped the Games would be a swan song, but in a sense, it was not to be. He was no longer prime minister and coronavirus, of course, made a mess of the best laid plans. A graduate in political science from Sikai University in Tokyo, before studying public policy in the US, He began his career working for a steel manufacturer. His grandfather had served as Prime Minister, while his father previously served as Foreign Minister. Abe married his wife, Aki, a Japanese radio DJ and socialite in 1987. She was nicknamed (laughs) the Domestic Opposition Party due to her outspoken views, which often contradicted those of her husband. Abe and his wife had no children, having undergone unsuccessful fertility treatments early in their marriage. He'll be remembered as the face of a more assertive Japan, a country which is wedged in a strategically challenging part of the world, with China and North Korea nearby and which grapples daily with its dark history. He forged strong relationships with Western democracies and security was a big priority for him. As for the Japanese economy, which faces enduring structural problems like an aging population, he attempted to resuscitate it through trade deals, slashing tariffs and more women in the workplace, including more foreign workers. Many now say the government will use Abe's death to highlight the need for the kind of security policies he championed. His one disappointment was his failure to gain support in reversing the pacifist constitution of Japan and nudged Japan towards some level of independence from the United States. This was all a legacy, of course, of World War II, when Japan was caught up in World War II, as you know, and then the constitution made, um, embedded in the constitution was the failure. Japan not allowed really to entertain international engagement. So it should be said though, in seeking to revise the constitution, Abe did anger China and South Korea who were two victims of Japan's 20th century militarism. Even though he led his party to commanding victories in national elections, he was never able to push through the constitutional change. But how a former PM was allowed to be standing out, campaigning in the open with minimal security has sparked debate. Questions are now being asked about politicians and their security to avoid tragedies like this from occurring. Though it should be said, history records there have been similar assassinations of public figures in Japan in the past. In the new world of Japan, post Abe's death, authorities should be guided by this history. Well, that's it for me tonight. Thank you for being with us. I'll see you tomorrow night at the same time. Good night.